Welcome to our podcast, Carefully Examining the Text. And today we begin at least the first of several episodes of Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a historical psalm. Psalms 105 and 106 are historical psalms as well. They, like other passages in the Old Testament, like Nehemiah 9, like Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 20 and Ezekiel 23, tell the story of Israel. Of course, in history, not every single event can be recorded. But history is always selective. As God tells the story of Israel, He gives a selective history. And the purpose of Psalm 78, as the purpose of those other passages that I mentioned earlier, is to tell the story to emphasize the two main characters of Scripture. The main characters of Scripture are God and man. By man, I mean God's people or all people of all time, men and women. And God is pictured as being full of goodness and and love and compassion and holiness. And yet his people are sinful and foolish. In other words, the two main points of history are the goodness of God contrasted with the sinfulness of men. And because this is such a lengthy psalm, let's go ahead and begin. As all the psalms from 73 to 83, this is associated with Asaph. But verses 1 through 8 will be an appeal as to the purpose of this history. Verse 1, listen, O my people, to my instruction and incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old. I will open my mouth in a parable. It's interesting that this word is also the word for the book of Proverbs. The Hebrew word is the word for the book of Proverbs. And it's a word used within the text of Proverbs in 1.1. In 10.1, in 25, verse 1. Significance to that. But God says that he's going to utter his mouth in a parable, or open his mouth in a parable, and utter dark sayings of old. This statement, dark sayings, is this word is used in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1, when the king of Queen of Sheba came to test King Solomon with hard questions, with difficult questions. And these are the words that are used to indicate God's teaching the history to Israel. This isn't meant to question whether this history actually happened. It is to stress that only by profoundly observing history and carefully considering it can we learn its great truths. History has much to teach us, but we must have ears to listen. In verse 3, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. 
The fathers are going to communicate to their children the revelation of God's will. They will not hide it from them. There is no such thing in biblical terms as parental neutrality. We seek to encourage our children to follow God, to walk with Him, to be His disciples. And so this history communicates profound truths about God and what He has done. In verse 5, He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. The purpose in relating this history is that parents may tell it to their children and that their children may tell it to their children children. And so it continues from generation to generation to continue to communicate God's truths over and over again, to perpetuate the story of the goodness of God, the goodness of God in contrast to man's sinfulness. But in verse 7, that they should put their confidence in God. The purpose of telling this history is that we might put our confidence in Him. We might put our trust in God and not forget His words or His works. In verse 11, we will find that the people did forget His deeds. But here, the purpose of teaching this history is that they not forget. So God teaches us this history to lead us to have confidence in Him, to put our trust in Him. God teaches us this history so that we would not forget His works. And He teaches us this so that we may not, under, may not imitate the sins of the past. Verse 8 and not to be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful. We like to pick out the good characters in our genealogy and boast about our association with them. But this telling of history will not flatter Israel's ancestors, but it will show their sin and wickedness. Notice that they are described as a stubborn and rebellious generation. Those words are used together in Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 and verse 20. Now, if you don't remember those passages in Deuteronomy 21, let me, do, let me give you this reminder. Remember if a child was stubborn and rebellious, he was brought to the elders of the city. If he refused to repent, the text tells us that he was to be executed for his stubborn and rebellious spirit. Israel deserved execution from the Lord. They were a stubborn and rebellious children. The very fact that God didn't destroy all of them all at once is not a testimony to how good they were, but a testimony to how long-suffering God is. The purpose of history in verses 1 through 8 
And Israel's failure is focused on in verses 9 through 11. The sons of Ephraim, who will come up again in verse 67, the sons of Ephraim were archers equipped for battle, yet they turned back in the day of battle. Now, some commentators give all kinds of guesses as to which particular battle that this might be. We don't know specifically, but I think the idea is that they were armed and ready. They were locked and loaded, but it was a lack of trust in God that led them to turn back in the day of battle. In verse 10, they did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in His ways. They refused to walk in God's ways. They did not keep His covenant. In verse 11, they forgot His deeds and His miracles that He had shown them. But God continued to give His acts of mercy and His grace over and over. In verse 12, He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. He led them with a cloud by day and all the night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and closed waters to run down like rivers. Now these verse te- verses tell us of the wonders of God in Egypt. Verse 12 mentions these wonders, verses 40 through 55 is going to continue this discussion by emphasizing some of the plagues with which God struck Egypt. So God sent the plagues to devastate Egypt, to set his people free from bondage and slavery. And the Bible tells us that God divided the sea and let Israel cross over on dry ground. In verse 13, he made the waters stand up like a heap, a specific reference to the song of Moses in Exodus 15 and verse 8. He continued to guide them throughout the wilderness. In verse 14, leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You read of that in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22, among other places. And God, in verse 15, split the rock. Remember when the people were about to stone Moses in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, because of a lack of water? Moses hit the rock and water came out of it. How much water would it have taken to feed all those Israelites, to to give drink to all those Israelites in the wilderness and their livestock as well? How much would it have taken? Well, the Bible tells us the water came forth abundantly like the ocean steps. He brought forth streams. He caused the waters to run down like rivers. God gave them abundantly. God was so gracious to Israel. Yet look at the next verse in verse 17. Yet they still continued to sin against God, against Him, to rebel against the Most High. In spite of all God's goodness, in spite of the plagues with which He struck the Egyptians, the plagues 
that Israel was exempt from. In spite of the fact he divided the waters that they crossed over on dry land, in spite of the fact that he gives them abundant waters and guides them throughout the wilderness in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, in spite of all of this, they continue to sin. They continue to rebel. And in verse 18, And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Their hearts indicate deep-seated wickedness, deep-seated sin. And in their heart, they put God to the test. Israel's testing God will be referred to in Psalm 78 again in verse 41, in verse 56. But they asked food according to their desire, and they spoke to God in verse 19, and they asked, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? In verse 20, behold, he struck the waters waters so that rock so that waters gushed out, and streams were overflowing. Can he give us bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Even after God had graciously given them so much water, they still continued to ask, Can God provide a table in the wilderness? By the way, you may be interested in that the words prepare a table in verse 19 in the New American Standard are from two Hebrew words which also appear together in Psalm 25, Psalm 23, verse 5. The Lord prepares a table before me. The good shepherd prepares his people a table. But here the people were doubting. Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? They doubted God. After all they saw, they doubted God. But let's continue the story. In verse 21, Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. Now, I know it's not the exact same expression. It says God opened the doors of heaven. But sometimes the Bible talks about God opening the windows of heaven. And it is always a picture of God giving something abundantly. In Genesis 7 verse 11, God opened the windows of heaven to send the rain and to send the waters in the time of Noah. God opened the windows of heaven in 2 Kings 7, verse 2, in 2 Kings 7, verse 19, to provide the people good food at normal prices in what had been a time of intense famine. And God promised to open the windows of heaven in Malachi 3.10 if the people would simply bring out a tithe to their storehouse. God promised to open the doors of heaven. And God opened the doors of heaven in this case. And notice in verse 24, He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. 
He rained down manna. Now, in verse 27, God is said to rain down meat when he gave them the quail in Numbers 11. But he rained down manna when he gave them that to eat for 40 years in Exodus 16. He rained down manna. He gave them food from heaven. In verse 25, men did eat the bread of angels and he sent food in abundance. Now, I think the point of speaking of this bread from heaven and the bread of angels is to emphasize that it is from God and also to emphasize how misguided Israel was when they complained, when they murmured, how misguided they were. In Numbers 11, they said, we're sick of this manna. They complained about it. It was the bread from heaven. It was the food of angels. God blessed them with an abundant quantity and an abundant quality of food. Now, it's easy for us to say Israel should have been more grateful for what they received. But are we? If we were eating the same diet every day for 40 years, would we complain? Most of you, most of us, within the range of this podcast, are living in a land of plenty and are living with more abundance than Israel could have dreamed of. Are we thankful? Are we grateful? God not only rained down this manna, but in verse 27, he rained down meat, winged fowl like the sand of the sea. Sand of the sea indicates abundance. God gave them quantity and quality of food. And he let it fall in a way that it would be convenient and easy for them to catch. In verse 28, he let them fall in the midst of their camp round about their dwellings. And they ate and were filled. In verse 29, God was angry with some of the most greedy among them and struck them so that They died while the meat was between their teeth. We read about this in Numbers 11. Numbers 11, verses 31 through 35, as the story is recounted here. But again, in spite of all of this, Israel doesn't learn. He blesses them abundantly, and they keep on sinning. He judges them for their disobedience, and in verse 32, they keep on sinning. They don't believe in God, and so he brought their days to an end in futility, according to verse 33. And that word futility is the same word translated vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, then verse 35 says they remembered God. They forgot him in verse 11. They didn't remember him in verse 42, but they remember him now. Yet even that memory is going to be deceitful. In verse 36, they deceived him with their mouths and lied to him with their tongues, and their heart was not steadfast to him. The word translated deceived in verse 36 is used for seducing 
for Delilah seducing Samson and trying to entice him to tell the secret of his strength. They weren't sincere in their repentance. But God was so gracious that even knowing their insincerity, the Bible tells us that here in verse 38, he was compassionate and forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. He often restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. God was gracious in spite of their feigned repentance. Truly, the goodness of God is shown in this passage, both in his holiness and his judgment of sin and how he restrained his wrath and was compassionate and gracious. But I would suggest to you that Jesus fulfills this part of Psalm 78, and you see that it will take us at least one more to finish this lengthy psalm. First of all, verse 2, Psalm 78, verse 2, is quoted in Matthew 13, verses 33 and the 35, to emphasize how Jesus spoke in parables. Jesus' teaching in parables was a fulfillment of this particular psalm. It is interesting, too, that this word for parable is, again, as we stated, connected to the Old Testament word for Proverbs. The point is, Jesus is speaking in parables, is portraying him as a wisdom teacher, the likes of Solomon. Jesus gives parable after parable in Matthew 13. But in Matthew 12, we were told in verses 38 through 42, a greater than Solomon is here. Oh yes, the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon but there's a greater than Solomon here, a greater wisdom teacher who dispenses more profound truths. Jesus is that teacher. When the Bible tells us that Israel in the wilderness put God to the test, these are words found when Jesus said, to Satan, you shall not test the Lord your God. The word in the Greek, the word in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in Psalm 78, 18 is the word used in Matthew 4, verse 7, in Luke 4, verse 12, when Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The question is asked, can God provide a table in the wilderness? In Psalm 78, in verse 19, the one miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. And that specifically happened in the wilderness. The same Greek word used in the Greek translation of Psalm 78, in verse 19. When God gave Israel quail to eat and manna to eat and water to drink, Yes, God provided a table in the wilderness. He was the good shepherd. And Jesus shows in the feeding of the 5,000 that God continues to prepare a table in the wilderness. Four times within the Psalms, the Bible speaks of God's wondrous works, a Hebrew term translated 
wondrous works in verse 4, translated miracles in verse 11, wonders in verse 12, and translated wonders, wonderful works in verse 32. The word that's used in the Greek translation of this Old Testament is only used once in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew 21, 15, as the children are praising the miracles that Jesus did in the temple. My point, there's a comparison. There's a comparison being made between God's wonderful works by which he displayed himself in the Old Testament and the miracles of Jesus that are shown in the New Testament. A comparison is made. In John 6, Moses fed us with bread from heaven. What do you do to show us who you are? Jesus said it wasn't Moses who gave you that food. It was God. But Jesus goes on to say, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will not hunger, and he who comes to me will not thirst. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 78. Thank you, my friend, for listening.